what it means to be faithful. In 1815, Germany's General Music Journal published a letter in which allegedly Mozart described his creative process. When I am, as it were, completely myself, entirely alone and of good cheer, say traveling in a carriage or walking after a good meal, it is on such occasions that my ideas flow best and most abundantly. All this fires my soul, and provided I am not disturbed, my subject enlarges itself, and the whole, though it be long, stands almost finished and complete in my mind." so that I can survey it like a fine picture or a beautiful statue at a glance. Nor do I hear in my imagination the parts successively, but I hear them as it were all at once. When I proceed to write down my ideas, the committing to paper is done quickly enough, for everything is, as I said before, already finished. In other words, In other words, Mozart's greatest works came to him complete when he was alone and in a good mood. He needed no tools to compose them. Once he had finished imagining his masterpieces, all he had to do was write them down. How amazing is that, right? Pretty amazing. Numerous authors have used this letter to explain the process of creativity. But there is a problem. Mozart did not write this letter. It is a forgery. Mozart's real letters reveal his true creative process. He was exceptionally talented, but he did not write by magic. He sketched his compositions, revised them, and sometimes got stuck. He would set work aside and return to it later. He considered theory and craft while writing, and he thought a lot about rhythm, melody, and harmony. Even though his talent and a lifetime of practice made him fast and fluent, his work was exactly that work. I thought about that. You know, I thought it's interesting. Let's be honest. There is, when you think about it, there is something seductive and sentimental uh, to this idea that the great works of Mozart really weren't work. That they were just this beautiful gift dropped into his lap and he just saw this beautiful painting, as it were, the finished product. And yet that's not the reality. Now there's exceptions to the rule. There's Michael W. Smith wrote a song called Friends. He would say, it was a gift from God. It just... Dropped in, wrote it in 15 minutes. Uh, Bart Millard from Mercy Me talks about the song I Can Only Imagine. It was a gift from God. Dropped in his lap, wrote it in 15 minutes. Truth is though, like Michael W. Smith in that song Friends, you probably all have heard that song, Friends are Friends Forever. Michael's written hundreds of songs that have touched and blessed people. Most of them were a lot of hard work and time and thought. But sometimes we get wrapped up in just the immediate you know, this, 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 this sentimental thing that, oh, that, that piece of work wasn't really work. It was just, it just appeared out of nowhere. And that's just not the truth. We're kind of like that. You watch football, right? We get mesmerized in football when, you know, Ezekiel Elliott takes the ball and goes 80 yards on one run. That's just great, you know. But sometimes it's the 20 runs before that when he got one yard and two yards and three yards and just kept beating at it until he got a breakthrough. That's the reality of your life and my life. The, the truth is, is that great accomplishments involve hard work. They take time and they aren't some uh, mystical or magical thing that just appear out of nowhere. We began this new series last week, Pursuit, Chasing After the Heart of God. And uh, we said that David was the original man after God's own heart. That's how the Bible describes David. He had a man, that, he was a man that chased after the heart of God. 
And uh, we're looking at that in this series. What does that look like for us to chase after the heart of God? What does it look like for us to live with a holy and a heavenly pursuit? Last week we talked about our hope. This hope, this blessed hope we have that one day God will come and take us away from this broken down planet and take us to heaven to be with him. And uh, he wants us to abound in hope while we're here in this broken down planet. And uh, today we want to talk about this idea of faithfulness. We want to talk about what, is it, what does it mean to live a life of faithfulness what does it look like to live a life of faithfulness here's a big idea to frame this this morning the life that knows the greatest success is the life of quiet faithfulness and if I talk about success I'm not talking about worldly fame and success but really just having spiritual success in our relationship with God the life that knows the greatest success is the life of a quiet faithful now this morning we're going to be in the Gospels and we read the passage already in Matthew 25, that parable where the master leaves and returns and he entrusts to his three servants, five servants, or five talents, two talents and one talent and uh, they produce differing results and uh, they are rewarded accordingly. Um, just a little bit of context to understand this and really to understand all the Gospels because many times we read the Gospels and we don't quite understand their context. In this parable, a, a master leaves and a master returns. That returning would be the second coming, which we're not looking for the second coming. We're looking for the rapture. There is a difference. The, the truth is the Gospels, and this would sh surprise a lot of people, the Gospels actually align better with the Old Testament than they do the New Testament. Because in the Gospels, they're still looking for that Jewish kingdom that, that was promised to Abraham. They're still focused on all those Jewish uh, practices and promises. And you know, what you, you know what you never find one time in the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will never find this term, the body of Christ. It's always focused on this kingdom, the millennial kingdom. You never find the body of Christ that we're a part of today. You never find that at all in the Gospels. And so, just to understand the context of this and all the gospel, all the, all the parables and stories in the gospels, they really almost align more with the Old Testament than they, than they do the rest of the New Testament. Um, and so this man leaves and comes back, and that's the second coming. Let me give you the context. Go back to Matthew 24. Here's a little context to understand where this kind of sits in uh, the biblical story. But concerning that day, an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is the second coming. So the servant in this story today leaves and comes back, or the master leaves and comes back. His coming back is the second coming, as in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming and uh, again a lot of people read that and think that's talking about the rapture right one's taken and one's left well no it's talking about in the days of noah because what happened in the days of noah who was left on the earth in the days of noah the righteous one Noah was left on the earth who was taken off to judgment the wicked 
at the rapture who is taken off the earth. Well, you and I are taken off the earth. We're taken, we, we're, we're taken off to, to heaven who is left on the earth in the rapture, the wicked. And what do they do? They go into the tribulation period for seven years where it's really not a good place to be. And then Paul says, encourage one another with these words. You're going to be raptured away. You won't go through the seven years of tribulation. At the second coming, as in the days of Noah, who's left on the earth, the wicked are taken off of the earth to judgment. The righteous are left on the earth to enter into this millennial kingdom that has been promised since the days of Abraham. That's just a little bit of a context. So, six observations about pursuing a life of faithfulness. So as we go through this, we can understand its setting. We can still read this story and there is great doctrine and great practical insight that can help us understand God, our relationship with God, and this idea of faithfulness. And remember again, our big idea today, the life that knows the greatest success is the life of quiet faithfulness. So here's our first observation from the text, and it simply is this. Faithfulness is a defining quality for God. And if you'll notice there in the text, what does it say? It says, well done, good and faithful servant. He defines the servant by his faithfulness. And there are certain qualities that God would say like holiness and righteousness and humbleness and justice that God would say those are qualities that should define our life. And so faithfulness is a defining quality. Note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well done, my good and talented servant or gifted or smart or bright or influential or strong or connected or creative or passionate. He, he doesn't say, no. What he says is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Faithful, it's, it's a defining quality for our life. It's okay to be passionate, but let me just tell you something. You can be super passionate, but if you're not faithful, your passion isn't worth anything. There is a thing when it comes to our walk with Christ of understanding the role of faithfulness. Last week we talked about this idea that we are justified by faith, right? That our salvation, Christ did all the work, but what unlocks all the work that Christ did? Simply our faith. And we said we can have faith. Why? Because God is faithful. I, I can have faith in God because God is faithful. This takes it even deeper today, though. This is taking it deeper. This is saying that not only can I have faith because God is faithful, I can be faithful because he is faithful. I can be faithful in my life every day. I can live a life of faithfulness in a world that really doesn't understand what that looks like. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I tell you, I can't think of a better affirmation at the end of your life, when you walk into the gates of heaven, into the glory of the Father, then for him to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I, seriously, I just can't think of a better thing to hear come out of the lips of the Father. And never forget, we can be faithful because he is faithful. So the first observation is that faithfulness is a defining quality for God. Here's the second observation. To be faithful is to manage what God entrusts to us. It's to manage what God entrusts to us. And if you look at the story, the, the master leaves and entrusted to them his property. One guy got five talents, one got two, one got one. And really, to be faithful is to manage what it is that God entrusts to us. Now, Here's the question, right? Here's the $10,000 question. What have I been entrusted with? 
What is it that is like a trust in my life? What is it that I am called to be faithful with? Could you write some things down and say, well, I've been entrusted with this and that. And I'll give you some generalities. You need, to, you need to go back and fill in the specifics of this. But I can give you some generalities. But for one, one person in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, he understood what it meant to look at his life, to look at his ministry, to look at the gospel, to look at his apostleship, as he said to the Gentiles, to look at all of that and to see it as a trust. 1 Corinthians 4, here's what he writes. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Why should they be found faithful? Well, he says this numerous times, but here's one verse, 1 Timothy 1.11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. He was entrusted with what he would call the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. But here, let's get a little more personal in 2 Timothy. Here's what he writes. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And what, what's Paul saying here? Basically, we've all been entrusted with the gospel. The very thing that has saved us and, and put us into a relationship with, with our creator. We're, we're, we've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted to take the gospel, the good news, and to tell people that there is indeed hope in their hopeless life. That's the reality. In a world that mocks the Bible, belittles the gospel, and rejects Christ, we have been called to be faithful with the gospel. To, to use our voices and our lives to proudly proclaim the good news that is found in Christ. Now, you want to get a little more radical? Talking about what we're entrusted with? This gets a little more radical. Look at this verse here and, and think if this isn't really maybe a little piercing. Uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. You know what you've been entrusted with? Really, with, with our very own temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're entrusted with our life to live a life that is holy and glorifying to God. Here's the reality. We were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to Satan. We were enslaved to flesh. We were enslaved to the darkest impulses within us. And what did God do? God came and redeemed us, right? He redeemed us. He bought us out of that slavery. He, he bought us out of the orphanage I often talk about. And he, had, he adopted us into his family so we can have a relationship with him. And so now, yeah, we're not our own anymore. He bought us. But let me tell you, who is Christ? Who is God? He's our creator. He's our hope. He's our glory. He's our joy. Would you rather be enslaved to all your dark impulses or would you rather be owned by the one who is your hope and your joy and your glory and your purpose? That's the reality. 1 Peter 4, uh, 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy. Why? Because I am holy and I'm your life. 
For you know, verse 18, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without defect or blemish. We have all been redeemed from the empty, hopeless way of life, and now Christ is our purpose and our joy and our hope and our glory. And, and some people are called to be the ones that break the generational chain of just dis- dysfunction and, 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 and just, uh, you know, hopelessness in their, in, their, in their families. Because this empty way of life has been passed on down generation to generation. And sometimes we are called to stand up and end it in our family and end the emptiness and the hopelessness that so abounds to break those chains. We are entrusted with also, look at this one, Romans 5. We looked at this last week. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now look at these next two verses. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. You hear what he's saying there. He's saying that what I go through in life, the struggles I go through in life, they produce an endurance in me, and as I go through them, eventually people start looking at me and saying, you know what, that's not you. (laughs) There's somebody else in there. Because people don't respond to life the way you're responding to life. And you can say, no, it's not me, it's Christ in me. And we are all responsible. We've been entrusted with our character. We've been given the character of Christ. And we're entrusted with that. And when I go through difficulties and hardships, I go through things that would destroy most people. And and I hang on to my face and I shine out the glory of Christ. And people look at me and say, that's... There's something different going on there. And basically those struggles I go through prove that I have the character of Christ within me. One more passage and we'll identify three more things we're entrusted with here. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we are entrusted with our relationships. Says the outsiders. There are people that are outside the Christian faith, don't know Jesus. We're entrusted in those relationships. Do you know that God entrusts relationships with you? Could be somebody at work that doesn't know Christ, going through a real crisis. They need Jesus more than anything, and you're the one that's going to point them to the cross. You're going to point them to their hope. Could be somebody maybe in church going through a difficult time, and God entrusts you to reach out and, and lift up that person and speak words of wisdom. Could be somebody, a relative, could be a neighbor, could be, could be an enemy. We're entrusted with people that cross our paths to reach out to them. We're entrusted with the words that we speak. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Do your words build up or tear down? Do you, use, do you use, use your words to bless or to curse? Are you grateful or do you complain? How do you? We're entrusted with the words that we speak. They can make a huge difference and then we're entrusted with the time and the opportunities we're giving. Walk uh, in wisdom, making the best use of the time. And so, um, just to understand there, we have been entrusted with these various things. And the simple reality is, 
is that being faithful involves faithfully managing the things that God has entrusted to you. Managing what God has entrusted to you. Okay, faithfulness is, is a defining quality for God. It involves managing what God entrusts to you. And here's our third observation. The key to faithfulness is being faithful in the smallest details of life. Being faithful, when it comes right down to it, it's being faithful in the smallest details of life. I, I just There's some really cool things to think about here. But note what he says in the text. You have been faithful over a little. So they were faithful over just a little. And what did he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You took this little and you were faithful with it. And that's really what sums up most of our lives. Faithfulness involves being faithful to the smallest details of life. Let me give you a reality check. Did you know this? That most of our life is a routine we faithfully repeat. Think about that. Most of our life is a routine we faithfully repeat. It's going through the same schedule over and over. It's getting up at the same time every day, going to the same job every day, working with the same people every day, fulfilling the same responsibilities each day, coming home at the same time each day, managing your home and your personal life, the same things. We just do them over. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's our life. So much of our life. And so, you know, you want to be a faithful, you want to hear God say, good, well done, good and faithful servant. It just comes down to being faithful to those little, simple, small details of everyday life. Here's the problem. And I think sometimes we get so consumed with focusing on accomplishing great things, we lose sight of life's little things, the small details of life. Great example. Heard this last fall and it's been back filed in my mind forever. Uh, Jeff Mannion from Ada Bible Church makes a fantastic point. At least I thought it was pretty phenomenal. Story of, of Samuel. Samuel, First and Second Samuel, that's the story of Samuel. Okay, So in First Samuel, chapter 3, we're in, introduced to Samuel. He's brought to the temple and dedicated to the Lord and he's sleeping in the temple. First story of Samuel, Samuel's life, if you remember it. He's laying in bed, hears a voice from heaven, gets up, doesn't know it's from heaven, runs into Eli, who's the temple priest, and says, what do you want, Eli? And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Well, that happens like three times. And the third time, Eli finally figures it out. Oh, you know what? God's calling this young boy, Samuel, who's probably about, I'm guessing, eight, maybe, I don't know. And um, so he says, next time answer, the, ask the Lord answer, respond to the Lord. And he does. And that's the, the first story of Samuel. Now, Chapter 4 and 5 and 6 come along and the Philistines steal the Ark of the Jews and you hear nothing about Samuel. You really hear nothing about Samuel and then all of a sudden you end up in chapter 8. So remember, he's 8 years old here probably in chapter 3. It's the first story of Samuel. And when Samuel died, it says the whole nation mourned for him. When Saul died, David had to tell the people to mourn for Saul, but no, when Samuel died, the people instinctively, they mourned the loss of Samuel. So we come to chapter 8, you've heard really very little about Samuel now. 1 Samuel 8, 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So Samuel was a, a prophet slash judge. He was the transitional. When God went from working with judges primarily to working with prophets, and, and Samuel's kind of the one in the, in the transition there. But we come to... Chapter 8, verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. It's like, wait a minute, so where did Samuel's life go? 
I mean, really, he's an old man. What happened? Well, you want the answer. You go back to chapter 7, last three verses. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So where did Samuel spend his life? Where did he build his reputation? In just doing the daily, everyday monotonous affairs the simplest things he went around and judged the people probably judged the stupidest of disputes property disputes and and uh, land disputes and and uh, relational disputes and whatever it might be and he went around year by year just year by year and next thing you know samuel's an old man now in his old age samuel does appoint saul as the first king of israel and he appoints david as the second king of israel that's true But what made Samuel a great man was just faithfully doing the work of God, the simple, small, daily affairs of life, over and over and over, year after year after year. And God could come to Samuel and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Week after week, I study, try to put together a message that can encourage us, that can challenge us, that can help us grow. Week by week, you guys get up, you go, about your, you go to your, your same job, you work with the same people, you serve your customers, you serve your boss, you serve your Lord. It's a good thing. You just faithfully get up and do the same thing over and over and over. Wash, rinse, repeat. You do it all for the glory of God. And we can get so hung up on that 80-yard touchdown run and we can lose sight of the fact that sometimes it's three yards here and it's four yards here and it's five yards here and it's one yard here and it's nine yards there and it's not always flashy, but you know before you know it, you're in the end zone. Before you know it, you want a Super Bowl. It's not always the 80-yard touchdown runs that make all the difference. Here's the issue. We all want to live significant lives we all want to leave our mark in this world and so what happens is we get our focus on the wrong thing don't focus on great accomplishments focus on great faithfulness focus on being faithful in the small daily affairs of life let me give you an illustration again from scripture go to chapter hebrews chapter 11 right hebrews chapter 11 it's the great faith chapter of the bible it's the heroes of faith it's it's the noah and moses and abraham's and and david's and all the great things they did of faith and so often when we for instance we focus on the ark right and we lose sight of all the years before the ark, all the years that led up to the ark being built, all the years of faithfulness and righteousness. We, we lose sight of the fact that God asked Noah to build an ark. Why? Because he was faithful. We, we look, for instance, at the promised land and all the great, you know, that big, beautiful land given to Abraham, and we lose sight of the fact that Abraham was a righteous and faithful man, and that's why God called him to be the father of the Jewish nation. That's the reality. We oftentimes lose sight of the day-to-day affairs of these individuals. The heroes of faith, think about this, were called to significant tasks because they proved themselves faithful. The reason they're in the hall of faith and did these great things for God is because they proved themselves faithful. They were righteous and God asked them to step up to the plate. They did. How about uh, Hebrews 11.8? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was received, to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in the tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When God came down and said, Abraham, I got this beautiful land for you. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. You know what it says Abraham did? He believed. Because why? Because he had built a life of faith in God. That's the reality. We think about, we often... um, Get our eyes, for instance, on uh, the Red Sea and the Exodus. We forget the 80 years before that. We forget the 40 years before the Exodus when he's out in the wilderness. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be, be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know what? That is 40 years before the Exodus. 40 years before the Exodus, here's a man who leaves the palace, leaves Pharaoh, leaves it all behind. Faithfulness, that's the reality. That is the reality. The heroes of faith were not heroes, uh, were heroes not because of their accomplishments, but because of their every day faith now let's add to that okay faithfulness is being attentive to the small everyday affairs of life let's add to that observation number four to be faithful is to make progress to be faithful is to make progress in your life and note what it says okay for instance one man bringing five talents more so he had five talents he made five talents more the other guy made two talents more we, we can look at that and, and, and again, we can get our eyes on the wrong thing. It's not about accomplishing great things, again, but making progress. That's what it's about in life. It's about making progress. It's about moving forward. You see, this parable, the, the, in this parable, the talents don't represent money, actual money. They represent our being faithful to whatever God entrusts to us, those relationships, those opportunities the time that we have, the resources we're given, all of those things that God entrusts to us. How do we use them to move forward spiritually? How do we use them to move the gospel forward? How do we use them to glorify God in this broken world? That's the reality. The reality is this parable never tells us how long the master was gone. It's not about how long he was gone. It's not about the size of the results. It's about making results. And we can look at this and think, wow, boy, he doubled his money and he doubled his money. And now, you know what they did? They made progress. They each made progress. And every two and three yard run, they moved the ball down the field a little more. We kind of get this idea a little bit when you look at the one individual who made no progress who just buried his money in the ground. And that servant that was reprimanded was lazy. He was called slothful. So he he was slothful, he was lazy, he did nothing. But the others, they worked, they made progress. And that's a reality. Um, We can miss, again, we we can look for the major accomplishments in life and miss out on the progress we make being faithful in the simple daily affairs of life. How many know who John Maxwell is? John Maxwell, 
pastored 25 some years ago and left that to become a business guru and he, he travels the world and speaks to all kinds of business leaders and he applies biblical principles in, into uh, business leaders' lives. He has this great thing called the power of five. You ever heard of the power of five? And here's what he says. He says, you go out, you got a tree in your backyard and you, wanna, you want this tree to be knocked down so you go out into your backyard and you take the sacks and you go out to that tree and you swing at that tree five times. <laughs> and you put your axe down and the next day you go back out into the backyard, you go out to that same, pick up that same axe, go to that same tree <laughs> five times. You put the axe down, you go back in the house. The next day you come back out, you go to that same tree, pick up the axe, <laughs> swing five times, put the axe down. Next day you go back out to your backyard, pick up the axe, go to the same tree, <laughs> swing five times. Now if you do that every single day, eventually what's going to happen to that tree? That tree is going to fall. Yeah, that's, that's, you, don't, you don't have to debate that. That's just, of course, that's going to happen. Just go out, take that same axe, go to that same tree every day. Five times, put the axe down. Do that every day, day after day, day after day. You don't, have to, you don't have to swing 50 times or 500 times, just five times every day. You could go out and swing at the tree all day long. You don't have to do that. Just go out every day, swing at that tree. And eventually the tree will fall. Now, if it's a big tree, it might take two years. If it's a little tree, it might take two months. It's not about when it will fall. It's just that it will fall. <laughs> well, okay. Someone else can pick up the axe for you. But that's his rule of five. And here is, here is his rule of five summarized in this way. Um, and I must have missed it on the handout here. Here's his rule of five, or it's on the next screen. His rule of five. It is better to do the right thing every day than to do the right thing some days. What a great rule. I'm thinking, why did I hear this rule of five about 20 years ago? But, you know, and, uh, and John Maxwell has written 74 books. And people, tell, people often ask him, how did you write 74 books? And you know what he tells them? One word at a time. But, but he has, what, what he actually does is he takes this, this rule of five then and he broadens on it because what he does is he picked out five things that related to writing. He may have done this with other things, but he takes five things related to writing and every single day he does these same five things. He reads, he thinks, he files, he asks questions, and he writes. Every day those same five things. But he picks up the axe, goes to the tree every day. And uh, it's, 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 it's pretty pretty phenomenal idea. The reality is, and I think it's on that last screen, the key to success is intentionality and consistency. That's what he says is the key to success. And you know, I was thinking about that. If you add intentionality and consistency, if you add them up, you know what I think you come up with? You want to guess? Faithfulness. Yeah. You had, if you're intentional every day to do the things you're supposed to do and you're consistent at doing them, that's faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, it's not like one day David just got up, woke up, went out and, and thought, hey, I'm going to defeat Goliath today. No, he built that life into him. He, he built that faithfulness 
into him. So when David appeared, he was ready. Noah was ready when God called because he was a man of faithfulness. What is it that you can do faithfully and consistently every single day? Every single week. I think what we're doing right here, you know, honestly, you come every week. I remember the story somebody said one time they stopped going to church. He said, you know what? I can't remember the messages I heard two years ago. I don't remember all those messages. I want to waste of time. And someone else said, you know what? My mom made me a thousand meals growing up. I don't remember all the meals she made me. I just know they made me the man I am today. And we come here faithfully and consistently every week, right? We hear the word and it changes us. It just changes us. You may not remember every outline or every sermon. Remember one time at a board meeting, Jan said she pulled out a a sermon outline that I did one time and I'm like, I didn't even remember it. (laughs) It's like, whoa, okay. And, uh, but that's that's the exception, exception of the rule. You don't remember all the outlines and all the, but it feeds us and it helps us become the people we're supposed to be. Understand faithfulness then as simply as slow and steady progress. Two more, two more observations here and we'll be done. There is joy in being faithful. Let me just tell you there is a joy that you will find nowhere else that when you learn to be faithful, you will find joy. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. There's just a joy to be found because Christ is what? He's our hope. He's our glory. He's our purpose. He's our joy. And when you live a life of faithfulness and when you hear, excuse me, your master say, well done, good and faithful servant, that will fill you with a joy that is irreplaceable. Intentionality and consistency will produce joy in your life when you look at what it accomplishes. And finally, the last one, number six, your biggest test of faithfulness is your life. I want you to see something that I think is phenomenal because there's this one, this, this one servant that he did nothing, right? He did nothing with the one talent he was given. And he was only given one talent. And I think that one talent represents something. I think the reality is God in his foreknowledge knew what each man would do in this story or the master would have known. God would know what each would do. And so he gave this, this one servant just one talent. He was responsible for one thing and one thing alone. And I think that one thing was his life. And what would he do with the gospel? Listen to what he says. Because listen, to, look at where he takes us. He takes us really to the gospel. He takes us to, to eternity. And casts the worthless servant into the outer darkness. I'll show you what I mean here. Listen to what it says. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two things I think we can pick up on from this man and what he said. Okay, here's the question. How valuable is your life? That's the question. How valuable is your life? 
this man here didn't value his life at all. I think this is the, the point here. Because there's, there's two things here. Uh, his response is, I think, simply an excuse. He says, I was afraid. I think that's an excuse. I think he just made that up. Someday everybody's going to stand before the great white throne judgment and give an account of their lives before God and a lot of people are just going to make an excuse. Why did you reject the gospel? Why did you reject me? Why did you want nothing to do with me? Just make an excuse. Just make an excuse. He was afraid. I, I don't think he was afraid. I think he was lazy. I don't think he valued his life. I don't think. And then... His heart was hard towards God. It's, it's fascinating here because what, listen to what he says. I knew that you were a hard man. Well, well the, the problem is God's not a hard man. Jesus isn't a hard man. He's tender and kind and compassionate and gracious and mercy, slow to anger, rich in mercy, abounding in grace. What this man did really was what's called projection. It's when you take what's in you and project it onto somebody else and say, you're a hard man. No. Who had the hard heart in this story right here, this man right here? And, and we kind of see that because two things. He asks him the question. Jesus, Jesus says here, let me find it again. His response is a question. It's kind of fascinating. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? I mean, you really knew that? because he knows he just made an excuse up. You knew that? Then why didn't you do the bare minimum and just stick the money in the bank? He didn't even do the bare minimum. That's how little he valued his life. He wouldn't do the bare minimum. He had a hard heart. He, was, he didn't care about the things of God. He didn't care about his creator. And let me just tell you, your biggest test of faithfulness is your life. Have you? you responded to the gospel have you responded to the gospel have you acknowledged your sin before a holy god received his forgiveness asked him to be your savior in life we are all responsible for the good news it's that simple it is that simple so there you have it six observations about faithfulness uh, number one, faithfulness is a defining quality for God. It's a defining quality. He defines our life by it. To be faithful is to manage what God entrusts to us. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's a relationship in your home or on the job or who it might be. Could be your resources. Could be the words you speak. It's being faithful to manage the things that God entrusts to us, even the gospel. The key to faithfulness is being faithful in the smallest details of everyday life. Those things that are mundane, it's just being faithful in the everyday affairs of life, the things we do over and over and over. And to be faithful is to make progress. If you're faithful, you're just making progress in your life. It's not about accomplishing the great things. It's just being faithful in the little things. And over time, your life will produce great things. There is joy in being faithful and your biggest test of faithfulness is indeed your life. There are some questions you can take home today and you can work through this. But let me leave you with one simple story here that I think bears ending that I think really speaks to this whole idea of what we're talking about today of just faithfully going out 
and putting in the work and being used of God for his glory. There was a woman who wanted peace in the world and peace in her heart, but she was very frustrated. The world seemed to be falling apart. She would read papers and get depressed. One day she decided to go shopping and she went into a mall and picked up a store, picked a store at random. She walked in and was surprised to see Jesus behind the counter. She knew it was Jesus because he looked just like the pictures she had seen on holy cards and devotional pictures. She looked again and again at him and finally got up the nerve and asked, Excuse me, are you Jesus? I am. Do you, do you work here? No, Jesus said, I own the store. Oh, what do you sell here? Oh, just about anything. Anything? Yeah, anything you want. What do you want? She said, I don't know. Well, Jesus said, feel free, walk up and down the aisles, make a list, see what it is you want, and then come back and we'll see what we can do for you. She did just that. She walked up and down the aisles. There was peace on earth. No more war, no hunger or poverty, peace in families, no more drugs, harmony, clean air, uh, careful use of resources. She wrote furiously. By the time she got back to the counter, she had a long list. Jesus took the list, skimmed through it, looked up at her and smiled and said, no problem. And then he bent down behind the counter and picked, up all, picked out all sorts of things, stood up and laid out the packets. She asked, what are these? Jesus replied, seed packets. This is a catalog store. She said, you mean I don't get the finished product? No, this is a place of, of dreams. You come and see what, it is, see what it looks like and I give you the seeds. You plant the seeds. You go home and nurture them and help them grow and someone else reaps the benefits. Oh, she said, and she left the store without buying anything. Let's pray. Father God, would you impress upon each one of us today what faithfulness looks like in our life? What it looks like in our home, what it looks like on our job, what it looks like in our school, in our world, what it looks like just between you and, and us. What does faithfulness look like? What does it mean to be faithful? Where do we need to make progress in our life? Each one of us here, what trees do we need to start swinging at with intentionality and consistently? What trees do we need to start feeding with intentionality and consistency? Father God, take what we heard today and, and help us all and just put it into practice. And God, bring us back out again next Sunday to feed our souls on your word so we can become the people that you know we can be. In Jesus' name, amen.